Good morning. In today's headlines, dueling campaign events in New Hampshire. Former President Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis squared off in the Granite State yesterday. We have the details. A federal watchdog reports that fraudsters potentially swindled the government that uses your taxpayer money out of over $200 billion in COVID relief funds. California is in the spotlight with a controversial new abortion bill. It would require teachers to instruct kids as young as 12 on abortions and where to get one. A group of social media influencers are under fire for endorsing fashion company Shein. You're going to find out why many are criticizing them for promoting the clothing brand. And an 88-year-old entertainer earns the Guinness World Record for oldest working female comedian. And next month, she's set to celebrate her birthday on stage. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning, everyone. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Wednesday, June 28th. Are you a regular Costco customer? Customer, Wholesale giant Costco is beginning to crack down on membership sharing. Oh, you know, Evelyn, I love Costco. And I can imagine it's pretty easy to, you know, share a membership to shop there. But hey, rules are rules. Well, that's right. And we will have more on that in, in the second half of the show. But first, the GOP presidential race is heating up. Former President Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis held dueling campaign events in New Hampshire yesterday. The 2024 candidates focused on their agendas while taking subtle jabs at each other. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on yesterday's campaign events. Former President Trump began his speech Tuesday by taking aim at President Biden and his relationship with China. Joe Biden is a compromised president, and that's why Nothing happens with China because China knows how compromised he is. They have full control over our president. The current GOP frontrunner brought up the IRS whistleblower's account of Biden's alleged involvement in his son Hunter's business dealings with a Chinese Communist Party official and condemned the president for his failure to address the Chinese military base being built in Cuba. 90 miles off our coast, think of this, China is now building military installations in Cuba, and Biden doesn't want to talk about it. When I get back in, I will inform China that they have 48 hours to get any military and spy equipment the hell out of Cuba. Trump promised consequences for China in the form of tariffs if he's reelected. Billions and billions of dollars of things that they send into us like they've never seen before. You know, I took in hundreds of billions of dollars from China. No other president took in 10 cents. Florida governor and 2024 presidential candidate Ron DeSantis topped New Hampshire polls at the beginning of this year, but that lead has since flipped. Trump is now ahead in the first Republican primary state by double digits. The former president had this to say about his lead contender. Somebody said, how come you only attack him? I said, because he's in second place. Well, why don't you attack others? Because they're not in second place. But soon, I don't think he'll be in second place, so I'll be attacking somebody else. The Florida governor held a town hall Tuesday about 40 miles away from Trump's event. He began his speech by focusing on the border crisis and what he would do to solve it if elected. He took subtle swipes at Trump, suggesting he wasn't able to follow through on his campaign promises. And I remember these rallies in 2016. It was exciting. Drain the swamp. I also remember lock her up, lock her up, right? And then two weeks after the election, oh, don't forget about it. Forget I ever said that. No, no, no. 
One thing you'll get from me, if I tell you I'm going to do something, I'm not just saying that for an election. DeSantis says draining the swamp isn't enough, and he means to break it if elected. He urged voters to look to the future and held back from criticizing Trump when asked about the former president's actions on January 6th. National opinion polls show DeSantis trailing Trump by more than 20 percentage points. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy received some backlash from Trump allies and advisors for a comment he made on CNBC yesterday. McCarthy said he thinks Trump can beat Biden, but wasn't sure if he's the strongest candidate. The House Speaker appeared to walk back that comment in a later interview. He told Breitbart that Trump is stronger today than he was in 2016. In New York, Governor Kathy Hochul signed a new law that makes the Empire State a so-called safe haven for trans youth and the trans community. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the LGBT-focused measures. Hochul signed the law before marching in New York City's annual Pride Parade. We're going to make New York a safe haven for trans youth from all across this country. The new measure prevents New York courts from enforcing the laws of other states that prohibit cross-sex procedures on minors, laws that might authorize a child to be taken away if parents let a minor undergo such procedures. That includes puberty blockers and hormone therapy. The new law also bars New York courts from considering cross-sex procedures on minors as child abuse and prohibits state and local authorities from cooperating with agencies from other states regarding cross-sex procedures in New York. A total of 20 states now have some level of restriction on such surgical procedures on minors. Hochul says that New York is fighting back as other states target LGBT people with what she called bigotry and fear-mongering. Governor, I'll make sure that the rights of the LGBTQ community plus are always protected. The governor also signed a new law which removes gender terminology from state laws, rules, and websites. We're also requiring gender neutral terms in our laws because why not? President Joe Biden's Assistant Secretary for Health, Dr. Rachel Levine, says irreversible cross-sex surgeries and puberty blockers for minors are mental health care. Uh, gender-affirming care is health care. Gender-affirming care is mental health care, and gender-affirming care is literally suicide prevention care. Levine has received criticism for advocating such procedures on minors while expressing gratitude for transitioning later in life and saying a life without children would be unimaginable. Former House Speaker Newt Gingrich says the political left see children as wards of the state. We're living through, in a very weird way, uh, exactly what George Orwell wrote about in 1984. A federal judge struck down Arkansas's ban on cross-sex procedures for minors last week, calling it unconstitutional. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And to break down what this law means exactly, we're bringing in Rick Maida. He is a Georgetown health law professor and former FDA official. Good morning, Rick. New York safe haven law. Can you please start by defining safe haven and protection in this case, basically what a safe haven law entails legally? Well, good morning. Great to be with you. Well, safe haven in this case, what Governor Kathy Hochul has done, has created an, an enjoyment of the New York family courts to enforce the laws of other states that have passed bans on providing gender-affirming care. So in other words, if a parent wants to take a minor or a youth uh, and have in, and they live in a state where gender-affirming care has been banned or restricted, they can come now to New York, provide have these services done to the youth, and the courts can't do anything 
uh, to stop them, nor can they enforce the laws of other states. And so what, in essence, they've done uh, is injected the government into allowing for minors to have these procedures done. Or put alternatively, minors can come to New York uh, and be and, and the courts would be barred from sharing information with their parents. I was going to ask about that because parents, they belong to a group that are especially worried about this, right? So how much say do they have then over their kids here in New York? Well, they're not going to have much anymore, you know. So what it's a bit become a progressive series of laws that have been passed that are now, you know, look, as a father, I can tell you, you know, you want government to be a partner, uh, not a parent to children. And what's happening is the progressive passage of these laws are moving children into more of a class that's being uh, kept away from information being shared with parents. And again, this is all done under the tutelage of saying that, you know, you need additional mental health care for children. Uh, however, the medicines that are being prescribed are not the same medicines that one would normally prescribe for mental health related issues. You know, in fact, uh, we're talking about puberty blockers, uh, hormonal therapy, uh, and other medi medications that carry a significant amount of risk if not taken properly. Now, I'll tell you also on another note, you know, the FDA has not approved for the particular indication of gender transition or gender affirming care with any of these medicines. And so there is a lot of, you know, lack and uh, lack of data around these products uh, in terms of the, its use, especially in minors, for this particular indication. And I think that should be alarming and concerning for everyone where there's no long-term safety data. Uh, and we, we know that many of these procedures can be irreversible. So what about those people that are concerned about this? And you know, people that have differing beliefs from this, if they were, uh, could they face legal issues if they would not necessarily take those steps that are, that is expected, like say parents would want to help their children um, um, out of the situation, would they face legal um, repercussions? So parents that want to, you know, help to protect their children. Uh, first of all, in New York now, the law has been written in a way that protects the minors away from the parents. And so parents that have concerns about, uh, you know, children that have expressed concerns about their gender identity, uh, they're not going to be able to be involved in their that child's life. And so, in fact, it's going to now have like an opposite effect where parents are no longer going to be able to be involved with minors that are going through gender dysphoria um, or having some thoughts about this different than what the sex that was assigned to them at birth. Uh, and so, you know, in states that have banned this, now it's New York has created a passageway uh, for parents to bring their minors or for minors to run to New York uh, and have certain intervention, medical interventions done that haven't been uh, tested and, and necessarily safe. And parents may not necessarily be involved with or have knowledge about these procedures that are going to be taking place. So there's a lot more that has to come out of this. But I think for me, what's most concerning is the lack of science, the lack of data and the long term impact it's going to have on children down the road, especially for irreversible procedures that are being done in minors that are not at the legal age of consent. Mm. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's important, uh, an important takeaway. So thank you so much, Rick Maida. I appreciate your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Some concerns, no doubt. Teaching children as young as 12 about abortion and where to get one. NTD's Daniel Monahan spoke to attorney Susan Swift about a controversial California abortion bill. 
AB 598 is one of 17 new abortion-related bills that seek to cement California's status as a so-called abortion sanctuary. The bill's author is Assemblywoman Buffy Wicks. It expands um, our sexual reproductive education uh, requirements to ensure that our young people have uh, knowledge and know where to and how to receive abortion care. Along Attorney with Susan Swift says kids younger than 12 in California can already get an abortion without parental knowledge or consent. AB 598 is going to further um, advertise to young children as young as 12 about abortion, that the, that the teachers have to affirmatively teach how to find an abortion. Here are the different facilities you can go to. So it's almost an advertising campaign for Planned Parenthood and other abortion providers in California. The attorney is criticizing the use of public funds to teach one point of view about abortion, but not the other. I think it's very dangerous for young children to be exposed to this, this notion completely in their school without, without parental uh, balance on any of that. It's not the school's business to be promoting abortion at all. And wonders why lawmakers want to introduce the topic to kids at such a young age. What does that have to do with whether or not you're going to be able to uh, do your math test or pass history or understand what basic science is about? Absolutely nothing. This is an indoctrination. This is political indoctrination and taking away parental rights. Swift says California law already mandates that California colleges and universities supply the chemical abortion pill to anyone at university. AB 598 would push this abortion access mandate on children as young as 12. The abortion activist side thinks that that is an appropriate uh, thing to teach kids in school. I, we completely disagree for a whole lot of reasons. First of all, abortion is the killing of an innocent human being in the womb. Why are we telling people, why are we using state taxpayer money to advertise using teachers to young impressionable minds. Swift says the push for abortion access involves dehumanizing people and that once you acknowledge an unborn baby is a human being entitled to life, everything those pushing abortion access want to sell falls apart. Assemblywoman Wicks vows to battle to get her bill signed into law. How are we still having this conversation? Shouldn't we have already achieved this by now? But here we are and we will fight. AB 598 passed the Assembly on May 31st. The next step is the California Senate. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. More coverage for you coming up. The Supreme Court ruled yesterday on a years-long debate that was over state lawmakers' power in federal elections. And a federal watchdog says COVID relief funds were potentially abused to the tune of $200 billion. That and more when we return. Good to have you back with us. The Supreme Court issued a decision yesterday that preserves court authority over congressional district map disputes. It settles a years-long debate, and many see the decision as a vital protection against gerrymandering. In a 6-3 vote yesterday, the Supreme Court rejected North Carolina Republicans' argument that state legislatures have the final say in federal election rulemaking. To get some analysis on this, Entity's Jack Bradley spoke with Jim Burling, the Vice President of Legal Affairs at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Jim Burling, thank you so much for your time. It's great to have you on. It's great to be with you again. So for this ruling, the 6-3 Supreme Court ruling, um, what is your reaction on this? Well, I'm actually not terribly surprised. What the legislators in North Carolina were attempting to do was to use the Federal Elections Clause to 
override a state Supreme Court decision on the gerrymandering of the state, uh, basically, which is what it was, which is a good thing if you like it, not so good if they rule if it's you're in the other party. But the bottom line was the federal elections clause, which says the time, place, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. So the primary question is, the, the merits question is, does that mean only the legislature of a state gets to decide? What if you have a state where you can have a gubernatorial veto or a review by a state court, a state Supreme Court in this case? And the Supreme Court of the United States said, yeah, the legislature gets to create the boundaries for the districts, congressional districts, but the state Supreme Court still has authority over that. There's nothing in the federal constitution that overrides the ability of the state Supreme Court to overturn a state legislative decision. Hmm. Now, uh, it's become, it seems, partisan. We have the uh, North Carolina Republican legislators um, against the uh, Democrats in the Supreme Court there, uh, the state Supreme Court. Why is this becoming so partisan? Well, I think it's becoming partisan because there was a uh, people realize more than ever now how important congressional districts are because we're so close. But this isn't only a Democrat or Republican thing one way or the other. For example, in New York state, there was a heavily gerrymandered Democrat uh, congressional line drawing. And there that state Supreme Court overturned that congressional line drawing by the legislature because it's so partisan, so gerrymandering. In North Carolina, the Republicans drew it. The Democratic State Supreme Court overturned it. But then after that, there's another Supreme Court that was elected in North Carolina that was primarily Republican, and they reversed the prior reversal by the Democratic majority in the Supreme Court. So it goes both ways. And I don't think anybody, Republican or Democrat, will look at this and say it's all one side or the other. If there's a Democrat majority, they'll gerrymander. If there's a Republican majority, they'll gerrymander. And what the Supreme Court said today was that the state provisions for override, say a, a Supreme Court override, are in place and are not going to be disturbed by the uh, federal constitution and the elections clause. Now, many are saying that this would have given the state legislatures um, free reign to set their federal election rules. Uh, how, to what extent is this accurate? Well, if the legislatures could not be overseen by a state Supreme Court or in some instances a gubernatorial veto, yes, the legislators would have had free reign to do whatever they want, uh, not only in North Carolina, but in every other state, such as, as I mentioned before, New York, which has had a history of gerrymandering. And I should point out one other thing, too. After the 2020 election, then-President Trump talked about the uh, state Supreme Court in Pennsylvania having uh, ruled on absentee ballots that had an impact, he said, on the election outcome in Pennsylvania. Now, whether or not you think it had an outcome on the effect on the outcome of the election, it is true that there the state, legis the state Supreme Court had a hand in line drawing and in a, a hand in setting the procedures for the election. And that kind of challenge to what the state legislature there do is pretty much precluded. Now, as the state Supreme Court did, I mean, is pretty much precluded 
that the state Supreme Court can do what it did. And the Supreme Court, without talking about Pennsylvania, essentially said what happened in Pennsylvania was okay as well. Well, with that, Jim Burling, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. On the same day, a New York appeals court dismissed the civil case against Ivanka Trump brought by New York's attorney general. This ruling may also affect the case against former President Trump and his business, which is currently scheduled to go to trial in October. The case accuses Trump of overstating the value of his assets to gain better terms on loans. A new Senate report reveals the intelligence failures of the January 6th Capitol breach. It says the FBI and the DHS failed to adequately assess the threats facing the Capitol. A report from the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee detailed the failures of the FBI and DHS in the January 6th Capitol breach. It concluded the agencies failed to fully and accurately assess the severity of the event, despite receiving multiple tips in the days and weeks leading up to the breach. Committee Chairman Gary Peters, a Democrat, led the investigation. In his words, these agencies failed to sound the alarm and share critical intelligence information that could have helped law enforcement better prepare for the events of January 6. The report cited tips on social media that suggested violence might break out and posts that encouraged protesters to take up arms. The report also said the FBI downplayed the overall threat and sent out internal emails, saying the agency identified no credible or verified threat. Similarly, an official at the DHS National Operations Center reported there was no indication of civil disobedience on the morning of January 6th. Republican Senator John Kennedy reacted to the Senate report on Fox News. We haven't had an, an opportunity to have a real objective analysis of what happened on January 6th before and after. Mm -hmm. um, what the Democrats in the House did was 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 basically a, a partisan car wreck. Kennedy says Republicans were excluded from the investigation and believes there needs to be a truly objective investigation by a third party on the events of January 6th. Over $200 billion potentially stolen from government COVID-19 relief programs. That's what a federal watchdog reported yesterday. Entity's Daniel Monahan has the details of the alleged high-dollar swindling. The report says nearly 20% of all economic injury disaster loan and paycheck protection program funds were doled out to possible fraudsters. It says the Small Business Administration, or SBA, had weakened its controls in the rush to dish out the funds. The SBA gave out over $1 trillion of those funds during the pandemic. It disputes the more than $200 billion figure put forward by the watchdog and says its experts put fraud at around $36 billion. The government is probing many fraud cases tied to government assistance programs. In September 2022, the Labor Department Inspector General said swindlers likely stole about $45 billion from an unemployment insurance program. Social security numbers of people who had already died were allegedly used in that scam. Also in September, federal prosecutors charged dozens of defendants accused of stealing $250 million from a government aid program. It was supposed to feed children in need during the pandemic. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. A new report out on the death of Jeffrey Epstein. The Office of the Inspector General at the Justice Department reaffirmed yesterday that his death was a suicide, but highlighted significant misconduct on the part of the prison where Epstein was held. 
A report from the Justice Department on Tuesday said that a combination of negligence, misconduct, and outright job performance failures by prison guards made possible the death of wealthy financier Jeffrey Epstein. DOJ Inspector General Michael Horowitz blamed numerous factors for Epstein's death. For example, we determined that MCC New York staff failed to ensure Epstein was assigned a cellmate as instructed by MCC New York Psychology Department following an incident on July 23rd where Epstein was found unresponsive in his cell with a cloth wrapped around his neck. In addition, we concluded that MCC New York staff failed to undertake required measures designed to ensure Epstein and other inmates were accounted for and safe in their cells. The report states that Epstein used extra linens to hang himself at New York City's Metropolitan Correctional Center in 2019, 35 days after he was arrested on charges of sex trafficking minors. The circumstances surrounding his death have been a source of intrigue, but the Justice Department said they found no evidence of foul play. While we determined MCC New York staff engaged in significant misconduct, we didn't uncover evidence contradicting the FBI's determination that there was no criminality in connection with how Epstein died. Horowitz identified 13 jail employees with poor performance and recommended charges against four workers. Only the two workers assigned to guard Epstein the night he died were charged. They avoided jail time in a plea deal after admitting to falsifying logs. The DOJ investigation was the last of several official inquiries into Epstein's death, and it echoed previous findings. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Conservationists and Native American tribes urged an appeals court to block a lithium mine in Nevada yesterday. A judge gave the go-ahead on the mine earlier this year. That was despite saying federal land managers violated the law in approving parts of it. A lawyer for the conservationists says thousands of acres of public land are being clear-cut. He said it's critical wildlife habitat. The Nevada mine has pitted environmentalists and tribes against President Biden's efforts to combat climate change. The mine would involve extraction of lithium used in electric vehicle batteries. And after the break, the U.S. has imposed sanctions on several companies who are said to have helped fund illicit activities for the Wagner Group. And social media influencers facing backlash for promoting the Chinese clothing brand Shein. Find out why many online are criticizing them for their endorsements. Welcome back. The U.S. Treasury Department imposed sanctions on four companies yesterday. They were allegedly involved in gold dealings with the Wagner Group. Another person with ties to the mercenary group was also sanctioned for making weapons deals. The targeted individual is a Russian executive in the Wagner Group. He was allegedly involved in some controversial activities of the group in Africa. The companies involved reportedly engaged in illicit dealings to fund the group's activities in Ukraine and Africa and to expand its armed forces. U.S. officials say that Wagner funded its operations by exploiting natural resources in Africa. The U.S. announcement follows the short-lived mutiny on Moscow led by the head of the mercenary group's leader, although the sanctions are reportedly unrelated. 
And breaking overnight, an unnamed U.S. official told the New York Times that a top-ranking Russian general had prior knowledge of last weekend's attempted mutiny. U.S. officials are trying to learn if General Sergei Sarovikin conspired with Prigozhin in the short-lived uprising. Sarovikin played an instrumental role in Russian war efforts in Ukraine last year. Although he was replaced as a top commander in January, he kept his influence in running war operations. The U.S. is considering new export restrictions on artificial intelligence chips going to China. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. U.S. chipmakers affected include NVIDIA, Micron, and AMD. This follows concerns that China may utilize AI chips from NVIDIA and other companies for weapons production and cyber attacks. It is speculated that the Department of Commerce may move to prevent the shipment of chips to customers in China and other countries of concern without obtaining a license. The move is expected to start as early as next month. Shares of NVIDIA fell more than 2% at the news. AMD shares dropped 1.5%. We reached out to the Commerce Department for verification but didn't immediately hear back by airtime. A group of social media influencers is facing backlash after a recent trip to China. They were invited to tour a Xi'in factory in Guangzhou. The influencers showered praise on the Chinese clothing company during the visit, but many online suggest they were shown a false picture of what's really going on. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg reports. Multiple tags say, need your help. A social media influencer told her half-million followers on Instagram that she's more confident than ever in her partnership with Xi'an after visiting the company's factory in Guangzhou, China. Another that toured the factory said she was pleasantly surprised. But is the company as ethical as it claims? The factory was one of thousands that Xi'an uses. The fast fashion retailer is accused of using forced labor in its clothing supply chains. A bipartisan group of U.S. lawmakers sent a letter to the chair of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission in May, claiming there are credible allegations of Xi'an using underpaid and forced labor. U.S. senators penned a letter to Xi'an's CEO earlier this year over concerns of the company using cotton from China's Xinjiang region. A menswear writer on Twitter took issue with the influencer's endorsement. He says in his post that he can't help but feel that these influencers were chosen to make Xi'an look progressive to a Western audience, while the company runs a sweatshop in the back to make clothes out of polyester and lead. A CBC Marketplace investigation found some Xi'an items had high levels of chemicals in them, like lead. Health Canada issued a recall for a toddler jacket in 2021. It contained close to 20 times the legal amount of lead for a product allowed to be sold in Canada. Others online said the influencers are taking away from the work of investigative journalists and Xi'an factory workers who risked everything to film the reality of Xi'an's workplace conditions. An influencer strategist on TikTok accused the influencers of acting as PR crisis managers and advised them to be more cautious when accepting partnerships. Xi'an is valued at close to $100 billion and churns out over 6,000 new designs a day on average. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. It really makes you wonder how a company can be putting out so many products at such low prices and still be operating ethically. Yeah, even now, Sheehan still claims to have zero tolerance for forced labor. It said in an email to the Epic Times that it's committed to respecting human rights and adhering to local laws. And now let's get to some headlines from around the world. The death toll from a Russian missile strike in Ukraine now stands at nine. 
That's after the body of a boy was pulled from the rubble in the eastern city of Kramatorsk. The city's prosecutor general said 60 people were also wounded in the attack Tuesday evening when a missile slammed into a busy restaurant. Seven-time NASCAR driver Jimmy Johnson has withdrawn from a race in Chicago following a family tragedy. This decision came after news that his wife's parents and nephew were found dead. Police believe Johnson's mother-in-law shot and killed her husband and grandson before turning the gun on herself. British actor Julian Sands was confirmed dead on Tuesday, five months after he went missing while on a hike in snow-covered mountains near Los Angeles. He was reported missing in mid-January, and on Saturday, his body was discovered in the wilderness near Mount Baldy in California. The UK's former health secretary told a COVID-19 inquiry yesterday that Britain was ill-prepared for a pandemic. Matt Hancock said the government was planning for the consequences of a disaster as opposed to stopping the spread of the disease. He said officials focused on buying body bags and burying the dead, which was completely wrong. Coming up, extreme weather continues across the nation, causing thousands of flight delays, and it might get worse. And June is National Home Ownership Month. In commemoration, we look at what happens to your home, as well as everything you own after you're gone. So stay tuned. What does it mean to devote your life to the truth? Does it mean investigating communist subversion here in America? Does it mean exposing the deadly fentanyl crisis in the Midwest? Or spending late nights and covering deep government corruption? Because at a time when America's traditional values are under attack, it's the responsibility of righteous journalists to uphold truth and tradition. Good to have you back. Much of the nation is going through an unwelcome hot streak. Del Rio, Texas has logged nine days in a row of record high temperatures, including an all-time high of 115 degrees last week. And the number of people under heat alerts is rising along with thermometer readings. It's the 15th day in a row of a heat-related weather alert in southeast Texas. The National Weather Service says more than 55 million people in over a dozen states are under heat alerts, and it's not the only problem in the air. Smoke from a record wildfire season in Canada has drifted to the Midwest. According to the website IQ Air, Chicago had the worst air quality in the world yesterday, followed by Detroit, and it might worsen today. Also... Air travel chaos continues. East Coast thunderstorms hit many large airports. Tracking site FlightAware showed more than 7,000 flights were canceled or delayed as of last night. And things could get more intense soon. With the July 4th holiday approaching, AAA forecasts nearly 4.2 million travelers plan on flying. Several states are pursuing their own safety remedies for freight trains rather than wait for federal action. The push follows a number of train derailments, including the one in East Palestine, Ohio, that dumped toxic chemicals in February. Lawmakers in at least a dozen states have advanced measures in recent weeks. Some of the new requirements include provisions long resisted by the railroad industry. 
In large part, states want limits on the length of trains that routinely stretch more than two miles long. A major concern here is how much time trains can block road crossings, which can disrupt traffic and block emergency response vehicles. They are also pursuing rules to improve detectors used to identify equipment problems and to require more notice to local emergency responders about hazardous freight. However, there are legal concerns over whether or not states have the power to enforce such requirements. According to data from the Federal Railroad Administration, there were more than 1,000 train derailments across the country in 2022. That translated to roughly three derailments per day on average. That's crazy. It does raise questions about the quality of the country's infrastructure. No doubt. New research questions the transparency of Google's online ad business. That's according to a report from the Wall Street Journal. Adalytics is a firm that analyzes online ad placement. It reported that Google violates its own standards 80% of the time. The research found that Google's ad program, Google Video Partners, places its ad on low-quality sites that do not meet Google's standards for monetization. Adalytics observed campaigns from over 1,100 brands between 2020 and 2023. Google charges a premium for ad placement. It promises high-quality sites running ads before the main video content with audio and no-skipped ads. In response, Google said the report makes many claims that are inaccurate and doesn't reflect how they keep advertisers safe. Wholesale giant Costco is beginning to crack down on membership sharing. The company says they've seen an uptick in non-members using membership cards that don't belong to them. A Costco spokesperson told CBS News the company noticed people were taking advantage of self-checkout by using membership cards that don't belong to them. The spokesperson discussed membership fees, saying Costco can keep prices low because the fees offset other costs. The wholesale giant is now asking for photo membership cards at not only regular checkout lanes, but also at self-checkout. The company stressed that their membership is non-transferable and membership policies remain the same. Costco has roughly 119 million members with the Gold Star membership, costing $60 a year. And here's a little bit of trivia. Back in 2002, President George W. Bush signed designated June as National Home Ownership Month, a time to celebrate home ownership. Really? That's really great, Evelyn. I didn't know that. Yeah, and because it's Home Ownership Month, we decided to look into what happens to your home and all your possessions after you're gone. Who gets your house, your money, your car, your dog? Entity's Colin Fredrickson talks with an estate planner. Estate planning is planning what happens to everything you own after you're gone. A key part of this is writing a will, the document that specifically outlines what happens to your assets. This could include your house, your money, and even your dog. Estate planning is important because it's your opportunity to decide what happens to your own possessions. If you don't make a plan, then your assets will follow the default plan of the state you live in. Each state has its own default plan. For example, in Texas, your spouse is going to be first in line uh, in the default rules to be in charge of administering your estate. And they may receive a substantial share of your property too, um, as well. And then um, your children, your adult children, will probably be entitled to receive something under the default rules, too. Mitch Mitchell is Associate Counsel of Estate Planning at Trust and Will. 
one of the top six estate planners, according to NerdWallet. Mitchell says that many people don't write a will because they think it's only for rich people or they think it's too expensive to hire a law firm. He says Trust and Will tries to make estate planning easier and cheaper for people. It guides people through the whole process, including giving legal advice and providing proper legal documents, such as the power of attorney. This is the document that gives someone the power to distribute your assets after you're gone. Everybody owns something. Uh, it may not be much, but you have personal property. Um, you might have something of immense sentimental value. You get to decide like, oh, my great grandmother's ring. That might not like, it might not even be a real diamond, uh, but it's been passed down through your family. And so you get in this document specify I want this to go to this granddaughter of mine. Estate planning involves much more than writing a will. Other elements include trusts, which are legal arrangements that let your trustee distribute your assets. Strategies for minimizing estate taxes. These include giving assets away as gifts while you're still alive. And business succession planning. If you own a business, an estate plan could have details on how to ensure a smooth transition of power. Colin Fredrickson, NTD News. And we are going into a break. Just in a few minutes, we will reveal the new Superman. That's exciting. And an 88-year-old entertainer earns the Guinness World Record for oldest working female comedian. And next month, she's set to celebrate her birthday on stage. So watch that one in just a minute. Welcome back. It's eight minutes before eight, but we still have some fun stories to get to. An 88-year-old entertainer has earned a Guinness World Record as the planet's oldest working female comedian. She turns 89 on July 31st and is set perform at the Gotham Comedy Club in New York City. And today's Andrew Thomas reports. Back in 2002, Dionne Forrest asked her golf partner Caroline Hirsch how to break into comedy. The owner of Caroline's on Broadway Comedy Club, she connected Forrest with a producer. Three weeks later, Forrest was doing stand-up, and she's been performing ever since. The young people come up to me and say, oh, you give me so much inspiration. You know, it makes me feel good. And then the old people come up to me and say, oh, dear, I wish I had the fun that you did. The most rewarding part for Forrest is making audiences laugh with her material. She stresses stand-up comedy as a positive force for both her audience and herself. Now I do it and, and, and I see all the audience smiling and laughing no matter what age they are. And my goodness, it gives me nachis, which means uh, happiness in the heart. Earlier this year, Forrest was named as Guinness World Records oldest working female comedian. Her friend Lynn Ruth Miller in Britain previously held the title. And there was a friend of mine, Lynn Ruth Miller, in Britain, but she died six months earlier. Huh? You know, what a tragedy, but it was a lucky break for me. For both Forrest and her audience, the performance is all about the power of laughter. I go in and, and people just want to laugh. They, they want to forget themselves. And it's it's... It just, it makes them feel good. I, when I see them smiling, I'm, it just makes me happy and they're happy. Forrest performs in Paris at least once a year and does stand up in both English and French. Her next show will be on her 89th birthday on July 31st at the Gotham Comedy Club. 
Andrew Thomas, MTD News. Wow, Forrest is so expressive. Yeah, it's truly inspiring. I agree with that. Never stop looking for joy in your life. Right? Yeah, and I'll have to look up that term that she mentioned, happiness in the heart. Oh, yeah, 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 right. Yeah. I remember that. Got some homework to do. And we're going to meet the new Superman. Goodbye, Henry Cavill and Amy Adams. The DC Extended Universe has a new Clark Kent and Lois Lane. DC Studios co-chairman James Gunn has officially shared his cast for the next DC blockbuster, Superman Legacy. According to Warner Brothers Pictures actor David Sweat will don Superman's iconic red cape, while Rachel Brosnahan has been tapped to play Lois Lane. This will be Sweat's first big casting in a major franchise. He takes over as Superman after Cavill announced last year he would not be returning to play the Man of Steel. Superman Legacy is expected to be expected to launch the revamped DC Universe. It's set to premiere in theaters July 11th, 2025. Mm, can't wait. Yeah, got a lot to look forward to. <laughs> That's right. That's all for today's program. We'd love to hear from you at goodmorning at ntd.com. Write us if you'd like. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.